if you have people coming into the system who have certain deficits and they spend time inside in prisons, in cages, and there is no effort to address those deficits, it's inconceivable that you would expect that several years later with the same deficits that they would come home and be fundamentally different. This is Voir Dear, conversations from the criminal justice policy program at Harvard Law School. And I'm your host, Skylar Dom. In this episode, I talked to Wesley Keynes, who's the reentry and outreach coordinator at the Bronx Defenders. I first sat down with Wesley this summer, and he had one of the most incisive views on the criminal justice system I've heard. Today, he tells me about the psychological traumas of going to prison and the ways in which we set folks up for failure who are coming home. So here's our conversation. So I thought we could start off by having you paint us a picture. So put us in the shoes of one of your average clients who's leaving prison today. This is the day he gets out. What is that experience like and what does the road ahead look like for him? Well, if I were to try to put you in the role of one of my typical clients, or someone who's coming home from prison, especially after an extended period, or maybe not an extended period, it's a very traumatic experience. Um, I don't think that the general public think that when they think about people who are in prison, they may think about the trauma inherent in going in, but they don't necessarily think about the trauma of coming out. The anxiety of not knowing, you know, perhaps where they're gonna stay, whether or not they have support from family, which would allow them to have a home, whether they'll have to sleep on a subway or be in a shelter, um, whether or not they're employable, whether or not they were able to gather any skills while in that would make them marketable. I mean, there's a lot going on. And then, especially for a long-termer, typically in New York State, people coming home from prison who don't have loved ones picking them up are given a bus ticket and that bus ticket takes them to Port Authority. And I'm not sure if you've ever been to Port Authority, (laughs) but it is a very frenetic environment. It's not a welcoming place. (laughs) It's not a welcoming place, and there's a lot of activity. Mm -hmm. So if you could imagine going from an institutional environment where the activity level is, is intense, but not to the level of a Port Authority, and then suddenly being dropped off in Port Authority with maybe several bags of your worldly possession and being asked to navigate that space and and get on subways and buses to get to your ultimate destination, it's totally emotionally overwhelming. If you have someone who have been incarcerated, let's hypothetically say for two decades. In the past two decades, New York City has gone from tokens to enter buses and subways to a metro card. Those kiosks where you purchase the cards are not I mean, for you and I, we do this on a regular basis, so it's not that complicated. Mm -hmm. We were around, well, you were around for the transition from tokens to metro cars, the kiosk system. So you, you, you have a competency around how to navigate that space. For someone who went from purchasing tokens at a token booth with a person to now being asked after a couple of decades to come home and interface with a kiosk, 
that's watching pretty. my dad interface with the kiosk is bad. And he's exactly. Been out, so, yeah. yeah, you know, so it's 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 the little things that we don't yeah. think about the anxiety that's inherent in that, mm-hmm. and then the shame of not necessarily wanting to ask someone for help because yeah. the question becomes, where have you been? This, right. you know, this is something that's been around for years. How, you know, how do you not know how to buy a metro card? Um, so yeah, all of those little things impact our clients, and it impacts them in a way that we don't typically as a society think about, but all of that trauma and, and, and all of that trauma can also lead to people not really feeling very welcome to be home and it could impact them. Yeah. Yeah. So there's these sort of micro level mm-hmm. incidents, right? Or just mm-hmm. things that accumulate like Metro cards, but there are also macro level problems like barriers that we put in place to people returning home. I wonder if you could talk about some of those. Definitely. Um, One of our biggest barriers, I think, is housing. I mean, New York City, generally speaking, is, I mean, housing is at a premium, and it's for people who have never been incarcerated or been convicted of a crime and been away it's difficult to find affordable housing. For people coming out of corrections, it's yeah. like on steroids with that. So that's a major barrier. If someone doesn't have a home, everything else kind of feeds off of that. You don't have stable housing, likelihood of you getting and, and you know keeping employment becomes diminished. Um, the likelihood of you feeling as if you're a part of the community is diminished. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it forces you, for, for the sake of survival, to engage in activities that are not necessarily legal, which could lead to recidivism. Um, those are, that's one barrier, but then there's also... Can I ask a quick question? Yes. Am I incorrect that also New York City housing authorities, like public housing, mm-hmm. makes it almost impossible for someone with a criminal record to get housing in those systems? Yes. So New York City Housing Authority has a program of family reunification where someone who's been incarcerated and who's getting ready to come home, their family members who are on the lease could request to have that person readmitted problem is is that most people are very skeptical of that process most family members who are in don't necessarily want to approach NYCHA and ask for permission to have family members come back in NYCHA being the New York City Housing Authority because they sometimes think it bring NYCHA's you know eyes into their homes and maybe they have someone living there that maybe shouldn't or you know maybe they just don't trust that this process will not be punitive mm-hmm. in some way down the line. So yeah, and then there are just certain classes of offenses that you can't live in public housing. And this is not exclusively NYCHA's policy, this is also federal HUD policy. So if you have a sex offense, you cannot live in public housing. You cannot access public funds to live in public housing with a sex offense. If you have been convicted of um, methamphetamine manufacturing, you cannot live in public housing. You cannot access public funds to live there. So it's, it, 
the policies really present a challenge for people who are looking to take responsibility for their past behaviors and get an opportunity to move forward. Um, there are employment restrictions as well on mm -hmm. people. There are parole barriers as well for people. Parole, ideally, in, in its finest moment, is very or should be very individualized, tailored yeah. to each parolee to enable them to succeed. Mm -hmm. It's not always the case. Um, there are blanket restrictions that are placed on, on parolees that oftentimes prevent them from really being able to reintegrate properly. Like you, what's you, an example of that? An example of that is um, I've had clients in the past who have gotten employment and in this one particular case that I'm thinking of, he was required to be at work at 8 a.m. And he had been living in one county in the city where his parole officer at the time was like, okay, I will allow you because your curfew is um, 8 to 8. I will allow you to leave early to access. To get to work. To get yeah. to work. Then he transferred to another county. And when he transferred to another county in the city, his new parole officer was like, no, you can't leave early. So... You know, his parole, um, his employer initially was sympathetic and said, okay, I'll give you some time to get this straightened out. Ultimately, he wasn't able to and he lost his job. Mm. I've had another client who was required to take substance abuse treatment program and had found a program on the weekends that he could have done on the weekends, which would allow him to work during the week. His parole officer said, no, I want you taking the program during the week. So he lost that job. So just the just I employment should be yeah. in my mind it should be primary. You know, it should be the thing that it's, parole officers would want to prioritize. It's not only primary and should be prioritized, it's stabilizing. Like on a core level, people need to eat. People need to survive. They need to be they need to have a way to, to earn money that doesn't put the public safety at risk. Mm -hmm. So if you have a parolee who has found a job and who's willing to work, that you would not be willing to tailor a, a, a supervision structure around that, that satisfy both employment and programming, just doesn't make sense. Ostensibly, what is, what is the purpose of parole? Is it supervision? Mm -hmm. Is there supposed to be any rehabilitative resource providing function to it or I mean I know there's a difference between practice and yeah. mission statement yeah yeah but. yeah well yeah definitely there's a disconnect between practice and mission statement the twin pillars of community supervision in New York State is both to help the parolee reintegrate into society and what that means is helping with housing helping with employment helping to access therapeutic programming mm -hmm. um being available to guide and, and, and assist parolees to really meaningfully re-enter society. Mm -hmm. The other pillar is to protect public safety, to make sure that restrictions are in place and supervision structures are in place to make sure that not only is a particular parolee doing what they're supposed to do, but in the process of their reintegration that there's no possibility that they'll put the, the public at risk. 
that doesn't play out, especially the first part. I think in New York, it's heavily weighted towards the second part, the public safety part. And public safety is important, and I would never diminish that aspect of their role. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is, the amount of people on community supervision and the caseloads that parole officers are made to have makes it almost impossible for them to really have an individualized process in dealing with any particular parolee on their case. It seems to me also that a focus on rehabilitation would probably ultimately be the best way to serve public safety. But if you, if in your mind public safety comes first, clearly that's not working, right? If that's the way, recidivism rates are incredibly high for people coming out of prison because we're not helping them land. and um, So it seems a little backwards. And, and is so for me, we have to go upstream to address that, which is something that, at least rhetorically, we have been articulating for several years now, but not really in practice. If you have people coming into the system who have certain deficits and they spend time inside, in prisons, in cages, and there is no effort to address those deficits. It's inconceivable that you would expect that several years later, with the same deficits, that they would come home and be fundamentally different from when they went in. And then you're asking them to do the things that they were incapable of doing prior to going in, and now you have disconnected them from society and all the transformations of society right. during that period of time. Yeah. So uh, prisons need to be more transformative spaces. And although there are programming um, systems and vocational trainings and in some facilities in New York State, higher education, it's very limited. And oftentimes the vocational is antiquated. There is no real connection between the skills and work and programming that's available inside and the marketplace. So so what's an example of that? Like, what's a program that's available in prison that's just not useful? Well, radio and TV repair is a big one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't seem... Yeah, not practical. I mean, it, no one repairs TVs that, like anymore. So... Some facilities actually still have that as a program. And yeah. maybe that's helpful for some folks who are like tinkerers who just yeah. want to know, who want to, mm-hmm. you know, have those skills. Right. But it's not really practical to the marketplace that we live in. Um, yeah, so that's, that's one example. What are some other programs that are available? Um, so... Some facilities have very facility-specific programming, but by and large, every facility has a vocational system in place. Mm-hmm. So there's carpentry, plumbing, electrical trades. Okay. There's building trades, which involves flooring and drywalling, that sort of practical mm-hmm. construction skills. Um, every facility has an academic school area where if you don't have your GED as previously mentioned you're required to to work towards gaining mm-hmm. a GED at the minimum um, every facility has um, maintenance program meaning that the upkeep of the facility is done by the people who live there 
and those become their jobs. And the idea is that, first of all, it's labor to upkeep the facility. <laughs> yeah, that seems like <laughs> a real win-win for the prison. Yeah, but also, I mean, an argument could be made that it's designed and it's intended to kind of inculcate a certain work ethic into into the, the population. Mm -hmm. And just to be clear, yeah. the I don't know what they are in New York. In Massachusetts, the wages that people get paid for that job are like cents per hour. Yeah, that's the Is same. Is that right in New York? That's the same. There's probably about 12 cents an hour. Okay. Um, anywhere from eight to maybe 17 cents an hour, depending mm -hmm. on longevity and whether or not you have a GED or, you know, it's, it. it's kind of weighted in that way, but it is sense. Okay. Um, yeah, so every facility has those sort of programs. There are porters, people who take the garbage out, sweep yeah. the floors, mop the floors, people who paint, people who, you know, do plumbing services. Mm -hmm. If toilets get backed up, they're the ones who come in and do that. So there's this whole infrastructure yeah. of work around the facility um, maintenance. Interesting. Um, and in your yeah. experience working with people who are coming out, are, are there people for whom these programs have been helpful and they are able to use the skills that they develop in, inside, you know, to, Absolutely. to contribute when Absol they get out? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> if a person is particularly focused and mm -hmm. if they perhaps had some connection to a particular industry area before going in and they can continue honing those skills, coming home, those skills are very helpful, especially the construction trade skills. Um, yeah, so it is beneficial for some people. Oftentimes the issue becomes getting employment with the conviction history. Um, I know when we've talked before, you've talked about viewing reentry as much more than just, I know we started with the day that you leave prison, but you have a much more holistic view of what the process looks like. So can you talk a little bit about ideally when you would start working with someone um, about how they're going to leave prison? Absolutely. Um, so at the Bronx Defenders, we practice a holistic defense idea. Mm -hmm. um, more than an idea, we practice holistic defense, mm -hmm. um, which means simply that we operate on teams where each team has different disciplinary staff members. We have social workers, we have criminal defense attorneys, immigration attorneys, family attorneys. So when people come in through our doors, either through the justice system or through just a community walk-in because we have an intake system, mm -hmm. there's already embedded in, in what we do an opportunity for us to look at them and to work with them to address other areas of their lives that may be problematic for them mm -hmm. beyond the initial presenting issue. Um, for me, reentry is is something that we think about right then and there when that person walks through our doors because we understand that if someone is justice involved, it's not just that they're accused of having committed an offense. Mm -hmm. There's usually 
other things going on. Why did they commit this offense if they committed the offense? Um, why would they have been accused of committing the offense? What about their lifestyle made it possible for the police to even believe that they're capable of committing this defense? Yeah. So when we start working with the clients from that early juncture, we identify areas where we can help them to help themselves, to empower them. Mm -hmm. So if it's the case that the reason why someone is, um, is, is alienated from the community is because they have no connection to the family, we help reconnect them with family. If it's the case that an individual is, is, is engaged in certain activities is because of lack of employment, we help them seek and gain employment training and you know, segue into working. Yeah. Um, so we look to do that on the front end. When it's the case that we have um, clients who are required to go to prison or jail, then what we do is we want to set up, you know, short-term and long-term goals while they're there. Okay. Things that we can do while they're there to help them on the back end be better citizens, be better people, and working with them to identify interest areas, working with them to identify areas that they want to strengthen, mm -hmm. working with them to find out what it is they want for themselves long term, and then just giving them the tools and, 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 and the help in, in attaining that. So I, I think that in an ideal society, all of the institutions of government, especially the justice system, would mm -hmm. do that. Our schools would do that. Our um, mental health services would do that. Our hospitals would do that. That's ideal. So for now, the Bronx Defenders, we're doing that. <laughs> yeah, so now it's just the lonely Bronx Defenders and a number of other great organizations. <laughs> Absolutely. So, it's, yeah, it seems like reentry is a bit of a misnomer. Like it's Very much so. Especially to your point earlier about how we send people in with certain deficiencies. We do terrible violence to them by sending them to prison, putting them in cages, and then send them out expecting them to be different. Like reentry, to me, signifies some kind of, you know, some, some something new, right? I'm coming back, right? Or it's like a rebirth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like we are not setting people up for anything like that. And so I, I really appreciate it when you talk about this being a, a much more. It's not a point in time. This is someone's life, and these are the circumstances that we've set them up in. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I always use the analogy of, a, of an apple and applesauce in relationship to a baby. Um, I like to say that if you give a baby an apple, mm -hmm. you have given them a red, green, or yellow thing. But if you give them applesauce, you give them nutrients. And, you know, reentry is like that apple for people who, you know, don't necessarily have teeth. So you have just created a, a, a an infrastructure, at least in New York State, where there's there's a pretty well-developed re-entry infrastructure in place. The problem is most of the people coming out of prisons and jails don't have teeth to take advantage of that, don't have teeth to eat that infrastructure. So it's, it's you know, the argument is gonna be at some point, well, we put all of these things in place and still the recidivism rate is high. So let's just remove these things and lock people back up because that's the only thing that works without thinking about what happens when we lock people up. What happens in that space? What are we doing to help them get teeth? What are we doing to help them be able to take advantage of 
all of the institutions and all of the nonprofits and all of the programmings that's available in the reentry world when they come home. And, and I just feel that we're setting up a stage so that in 10, 15 years, the argument will be made that, hey, we tried this, we tried to, you know, we did what the left wanted us to do. We threw money at this thing and it didn't work. We're just wasting money. So let's shift these funds back into, you know, prisons and lock people up because that's what has proven to work. Which brings to mind two things. One is that this does seem to be a, a, a hot topic. I mean, criminal justice reform is in a weird place right now, but reentry does seem to be kind of a, an it um, area of reform. Yeah, it's sexy right now yeah, it's sexy, in the world exactly. of mass incarceration. Yeah, <laughs> if anything can be sexy. Um, the second thing is, the first day of most criminal law classes, the professor opens with some kind of discussion of like, what is the purpose of punishment, right? And we you know we talk about deterrence or rehabilitation or just punishment, retribution. And reentry at its best is about hopefully what we've been talking about, rehabilitation. And I and what you're kind of saying is that we're there's going to be a swing back, right? There's going to be a swing away from rehabilitation back to just confinement or you know protecting people from dangerous people in society. I wonder, all that is a long introduction to say, I wonder what you think the current purpose of our incarceral state is, and what should it be? Well, it's clearly punishment. I, I don't know that there's anyone who can look at our structure of, of justice and, and think that it's anything other than punishment and think that it's anything other than controlling a group of people, mm -hmm. you know, black and brown people, and it's it's a source of employment, um, a huge source of employment. For it's, certain populations. For so certain populations. New yeah. York, all the prisons exactly. in white rural areas. Exactly. You know, so it's, and, and it, it, it's not just the prisons though, it's not just the locations of the prisons and the fact that they're in white rural areas employing sometimes entire towns, mm -hmm. right? That's part of it. But it's also the build out of the police industry. It's the build out of the courts. Mm -hmm. It's attorneys. It's, it's the growth and, 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 and employment of attorneys. So it's, it's an infrastructure that goes way beyond police and corrections offices. And yeah. th they're often identified by people as, you know, the, the, the primary or only actors in this mass incarceration scheme. And it's not. There are lawyers there, there are policy makers there. I mean, NYPD is not, <laughs> it's not supposed to be an independent Agency. It's an agency that's governed by policy that comes out of the mayor's office, right? So when we see police tactics and, and, and police policies being played out, we need to move beyond that police officer who engages in behavior that we think is wrong and look to the policymakers mm -hmm. who empowered that police officer to, to think that this was okay, right? And I think that Policymakers get taken off the hook a lot. The mayor, the city council, the governor, the legislature, they get taken off the hook a lot. And 
when you have, for instance, a police officer who kills someone and everyone agrees that it was an illegal act, an act that should not have happened, mm -hmm. those policymakers, there's usually a couple of responses. One, they're silent and ask to be patient while an investigation takes place. Yeah. Or two, they come out in stating that this was wrong and they're gonna acknowledge that it's wrong, mm -hmm. but that the actor was a rogue. And I would argue that the actors may be rogue, mm -hmm. but there's a structure with which they operate in which makes possible their rogueness. And I think that policymakers don't want to address those structures, yeah. don't want to address their roles in those structures. So yeah. it becomes easy to demonize individual officers mm -hmm. who act poorly, mm -hmm. right, and make stupid decisions, illegal decisions, yeah. without taking responsibility for their own oversight. Yeah. You know, having a governor or a mayor talk about a particular police officer who engage in some activity just seems pretty hypocritical to me. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. It's your job to have policies that they follow. So that sort of brings me, and I, I'm gonna like put on my metaphorical reading glasses here, because I was looking at your bio on the Bronx Fenders website, and it says, Wesley's life goal is the empowerment of underserved communities as they become creative self-advocates who challenge policymakers' notion of the, of the social contract. I loved this, and I want to know how do you want to challenge people's notion of the social contract? You are, for over three years, I have embedded that statement in my <laughs> bio. It has been everywhere that I have been, and you are the first person really? who have asked me about that. Well, I think it's probably because the rest of your bio is so impressive. That, it, that, uh, that's what people are looking not at. Not likely. Yeah. It's funny because that's really a sarcastic dig at us as a society. The idea that there's a social contract. A contract implies that two or more groups on opposing sides possibly sat and sort of came to this agreement where mm -hmm. both or all sides walk away feeling reasonably comfortable with the outcome. And in the world of mass incarceration and justice and reform, the people who are in this system were never a part of any contract, right? The people who are in this system are black and brown and poor people who were never intended as stakeholders in our society. Mm -hmm. So the idea to think that the notion of the social contract, you know, you hear policymakers talk about this all the time. Well, you know, citizens have a responsibility that we have this social contract where government is responsible for X and citizens do Y and, you know, so that was really a sarcastic dig at that, mm -hmm. that we really need to have an open forum about how we order our society mm -hmm. and have the people who are least who have the least access to power have them at the table when those contracts are being negotiated yeah. so it's real it's, it's really a sarcastic dig at the notion that you know we have this 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 hypothetical past where there was a social contract and in mm -hmm. fact America's contract was between those who had means and yeah. those who had power, those who had property. 
and the people now who are being crushed by the mass incarceration process have none of that in large measure. Right. Yeah. And a lot of the same rights now that they did at the beginning because one of the things we haven't talked about mm -hmm. is that after you've been convicted of a felony, you mm -hmm. lose a lot of your civil rights. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Great so, question. <laughs> no, I, I, I loved it. Um, okay, so I think to bring this to a close, there are human reasons why we should care about folks coming out of prison. I think the image of someone showing up at the Port Authority with a bus ticket and nothing else and a you know, metaphorical baggage that I, I can't understand um, should pull on our heartstrings. But if, it, if that weren't the reason why, why should the average non-justice involved citizen care about the experiences of people coming back from prison? I think we should all care about humanity. And I think if we see the people who are embedded in the justice system as people, as human beings worthy of human dignity, then we should be concerned about how those people exit correctional spaces. If there's a class of people who is not allowed to really be fully whole, then none of us are really fully whole. Mm -hmm. And none of us are really fully safe. That's important to understand that if we have 70 million Americans who have some justice involvement in their present or past, mm -hmm. it's only a matter of time before that world that can't enter the larger society create their own alternative world. And how safe will that make us as a society? Hold people accountable for their actions and their behaviors and the consequences of it. If we're gonna have correctional spaces, they should be transformative because no one goes to prison for forever. Very few people go to prison for forever. The vast majority of people who enter the system eventually exit the system. Mm -hmm. And how they exit should be of concern to all of us. Well, I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much, Wesley, for sitting down with me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been an episode of Wardeer, Conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School. The views expressed in this podcast are none but my own. They do not reflect the views of Harvard Law School, the university, or the Criminal Justice Policy Program. I want to thank the folks at the Criminal Justice Policy Program for all their help in making this podcast, specifically Anna White and Brooke Hopkins. I also want to thank the folks at Poddington Bear who composed the theme music for our podcast. And of course, I want to thank you for tuning in. Thanks. Thanks.